0: When we say dance, one may instantaneously visualise grooving to ballet, jazz, hip-hop or peppy Bollywood numbers. But when it comes to classical dance, terms like Bharatnatyam, Arangetram, it suddenly becomes serious business. So what has taken the fun and sway away from one of the most widely practised and revered art forms worldwide? and what remains of its once glorious and uncontested legacy? Let's find out. You are listening to News and Views, the Quint's podcast series, where we introduce you to some of the greatest minds across different fields through in-depth interviews. I am Oindrisha, and today we are going to be talking to Dr. Anita Ratnam for World Dance Day. Dr. Ratnam prefers to be referred as a contemporary classicist famously or infamously known as a norm breaker narrative shaper in her own right who is suddenly also an anti-national for vocalizing issues that challenge the institutionality and modus operandi of a system that renders misconduct excusable by shielding perpetrators even if that person may be your very own teacher or guru. Hi, Anita De. Give us a little insight of your journey as a dancer. How did dance happen to you? Was it a conscious foray into the path
1: or was it coincidental? What is your story? First of all, I have to say that dance chose me. I didn't choose dance. Right. And I, mm-hmm. I was introduced to dance because my mother was not allowed to learn dance. She had a very strict father and who thought it was not appropriate for girls of that generation in uh, still British India to learn. And so I remember my mother as a teenager, she told me that she made a vow that when she got married and if she had a daughter, she would give that child a chance to dance. And the minute I think I was three years old, I believe I was dancing all the time. And so that's how my journey to dance began. I had a Very lovely teacher who taught me folk dance and all the other dances. So it seemed that almost my mother's wish and dreams were fueled into me even while I was in her womb. I never thought, though, that I would have a life in the performing arts. I was a television producer for 10 years in New York City, in which I didn't dance. But when I came back to India, I said, this is what I know best. So uh, so dance, you know, re-invited me back. So that's my journey. I'm the first generation professional dancer on both sides of my family. Everybody else is in business or in service.
0: Right, right. So you have had a training in classical dance, but you like to be referred to as a contemporary dancer. Yes. A contemporary performer. performer. Can you can you tell us that why exactly uh, do you prefer being called as contemporary
1: dancer? I trained in Bharatanatyam, I trained in Kathakali, I trained in in Mohiniyattam, three classical styles of South India. Along with, I also took yoga very seriously because I had serious asthma as a child. And then when I went out of India, I went into the meditative arts, Tai Chi and Qigong. So when I came back after 12 years of not dancing and doing other work like media work, I asked myself, what kind of a performer do I want to be? So my challenge was, how do I synthesize the knowledge, the vocabulary, the embodied muscle memory of all the various vocabularies that I have? And how do I create uh, my own form of movement that could be called hybrid in a sense, but how could I have my politics or my thought or my art and my life come together? And the repertoire was always about a woman either waiting or in anticipation. And I had just walked out of a marriage with two very young children. So I really felt that my life and my art had to come together. And that is why I created a style of movement that I call Neo Bharatam.
0: Right. But you actually are much more than just a dancer or a performer. Like, you know, for instance, your Twitter bio reads, uh, and I would really like to quote you here, Uh, performer, myth, recaster, womanist, not womanist, womanist, (laughs) culture, sherpa, dog mom. And, you know, whilst our personal conversation, you also mentioned to me that you are also sometimes referred to as a bad Hindu.
1: (laughs) Which role defines you the best and why? I think that we wear many hats throughout the day the love of communication, the the mind able to have many balls in the air at the same time, um, uh, you know, a kind of fluency in articulation, but also a love of textiles and fabrics and good food and great wine and travel and uh, the touch and feel of, you know, the sensuous touch and feel of life. You have to say something on your Instagram and Twitter and that can keep changing. So when I when I looked at myself and I said, okay, I'm a performer. Right. And I don't say dancer anymore. But I say culture Sherpa. Sherpa is somebody who guides, right? Uh, guides you on a kind of a difficult terrain. So I feel that now at my stage, I'm in my 60s. I've uh, been in the arts for, the, for 50 years. I have an, a very popular web portal. So it depends on what I'm doing at a particular time. And so it finds uh, somebody like you, you're trying to slot me or saying, what are you now and what do you call yourself? And I can always say, it depends on what I'm doing at that particular point. But to end this, I will say that I'm very comfortable as a performer. When I'm on stage or in rehearsal, it doesn't matter matter who's watching or if 2,000 people are watching and the lights are on, it's fine. I feel completely at home.
0: But why a bad Hindu? Which was very interesting to me, you know, when we had the
1: chat. Well, I think because we are at a time when we are being asked to define ourselves and uh, saying that um, you have to be this way or else, or, and you can't be a centrist or you can't be a liberal. You have to be this way or this way, you know, right, left, and there is no middle ground. And we're all about gray. And we're all about gray areas. And I'm saying that um, I'm I'm very comfortable about who I am, my rituals and my faith. But I but it's private. I don't uh, go around, you know, shouting it. For instance, there are so many there are talks about uh, you know certain posters and there's no bindi on some of the girls. I mean, it's it's boiled down to that. So for me. Uh, To be a good Hindu is to be completely accommodative. To allow, in the light of today's definition of what makes a good Hindu, I guess I don't fall into that category.
0: Because you dance to your own tunes.
1: Yes. And
0: not not, uh, to a certain construct or a certain thing that has been said somewhere.
1: Yes, or something that's expected today on Twitter, for instance. Yes, of course, yes.
0: Um, but Ani just tell us, um, what is the classical dance ecosystem right now? What it means to be a classical dancer today in India or around the globe? What are the joys and, uh, you know, the downsides of it? Broadly, the issues that are plaguing
1: the ecosystem largely. It's a very, very broad question, but I, I think we have to break it down. I think Sorry. that there, is, there will always be, always be a pull for uh, parents to uh, take their children to classical dance and classical music uh, you know, teaching. Because especially outside India in the diaspora, dance and music have become the kind of introduction to India 101. It's through the dance and right. music. You will learn about either the stories or the myths or about composers. And a lot of the classical dance and music repertory has faith based in it so there's a there's a kind of a demand for a kind of surrender uh, humility that you have that the teacher or the guru knows more than you and this is the time for you to listen learn absorb and not ask questions the idea the word guru actually means somebody who dispels darkness or somebody who brings light and uh, today we have I would say more teachers than gurus. So the pull of the classical arts will always be there, no matter what issues uh, emerge now, later, before, and in the future. Right. The e- the ecosystem today, I would say, in urban centres all over the world, is that dance and music is not the only is not the only thing that young people are doing. They're doing dance and music along with either their education or something else, and. Uh, my music teacher, for instance, uh, yes. lived in lived in a gurukul, which means he lived with his guru and he washed his clothes and mm-hmm. he learned, he learned from him, but we don't have that system. We have children coming two, twice a week, which is now the norm. Class is one hour or two hours. The ecosystem right. has certainly changed. So when right. we talk of we talk of a parampara, uh, we should probably relook it, relook at it and just call it a system. And if the guru is going to lead you into that unknown, then there is a certain layer of, I would say, a mystery. So there are lots of little, little ways in which the teacher and the the student relationship is definitely one of power inequality, the power equation. But having said that, one has to be very lucky and fortunate to find the right teacher, to find the right guru in one's life. One of the things that when parents bring their children, when they're young, there's a lot of competition among the parents. We never discuss this, but the right. parents and their own economic social background, who is wants it more and faster for their student. We have also an ecosystem at the moment in which I think not many gurus are encouraging their students to talk about issues outside the actual learning of the dance or the music. I think uh, the discussion of what's happening around, uh, what's happening with the Me Too movement. For instance, we have you know, something that's come out uh, from sports and in the wrestling area. I, right. I, would, I encourage those teachers and gurus who have that, that kind of diversity across age groups of students to actually spend a little time and encourage this kind of discussion Because only then will uh, students of dance and music understand that they are part of a larger society. One of the important things that I want to point out is that the gurus of yesteryear, of 50, 70 years ago, they were not performers. They were the teachers. teachers. Their students were the performers. Today, all the gurus are dancing themselves. If you're a guru and you're a performer, then the students are always waiting for their that chance unless the guru selects them to be part of the group or gives them an opportunity.
0: So is there a pressure, are, are you saying that is there a pressure to sort of succumb to those expectations of gurus to sort of you know, which comes with the legacy or the guru shishya parampara that we are talking about?
1: I think it's very individual. I think it depends on each guru. I know some of them who have 200 students and who have found right. a way to to put 40 people on stage at the same time so that the costs can be shared uh, and a way to encourage people who don't have as much resources and put them along with the others and to be able to just make the talent shine. But it takes a lot from the teacher guru. We are not Mm. aware of all these pulls and pushes. You know, I do know of some gurus who, who do succumb to parents with a lot more force or power or resources or contacts or privilege. I always say that life is not a uh, level playing field, so why should the arts be a level playing field it 's even more of an uneven le- level playing field, and only one percent make it it 's a very tough, very tough battle to stay the course
0: right right
1: so um, talking about me too
0: something that has come up in the you know the recent uh, you know news cycle is this in- national institute called Kalakshetra Foundation. With which you also have had a background, I believe you're on Kalakshetra alumni. Yes. So, what what do you think? So, right now, what is happening is you know the allegations are increasing with each passing day, whereas the issue was flagged, you know, quite a long while back, and this doesn't all just affect the current crops of students who are pursuing, uh, who are um, the students of the institute, but also might affect those who want to pursue arts and culture as a, as a career option. Because if they don't feel safe inside classrooms with their gurus via medium which needs a certain physical contact, what is their safe word really? Like, where do they feel safe?
1: So, your thoughts on that. Another big question. So, uh, in 2018, when Me Too came out out of Hollywood, in 2019 there was a very important meeting in Chennai, where seven Carnatic musicians were called out. Seven of them uh, were named, very some very prominent, with you know proof. And there was a big meeting, and immediately the, the Federation of Sabhas had immediately taken notice. At, some of them attended the meeting. And these seven were, was it blacklisted? They were not given the performance slots. So it started as early as, as 2019. It happened in Carnatic music in Chennai. and it, But it was never picked up in anywhere. The Kathak people didn't pick it up. Nowhere else in the art spaces in India was it picked up. It was talked to, talked about in the whisper networks of phone calls and WhatsApp. But it never, never. didn't
0: get traction. It
1: did traction. That's it. It didn't get traction. So now now we fast forward. We have COVID and now we fast forward uh, to this. And then we also had some very serious allegations against the reputed Gundecha brothers. But the allegations came from the Europe uh, Gurukul. There was also an allegation against Pandit Birjit Maharaj, also from the UK. But nothing had happened from within India, which is why the Kalakshetra student protest of March 30th is very significant. Now, I as an alumni... I will go if I, there is an event in Kalakshetra but that would be all. I have to say that I've heard uh, some of these rumours that became part of a formal allegations over several years, you know, not maybe about one person but with many people. And it is now Kalakshetra but I want the viewers to understand that Kalakshetra is one of four academies of national arts excellence, all four. Are under the care of the of the centre. Nineteen ninety three, I passed out many years when the government took over. You know, when somebody from Delhi, which is we really have Delhi both hai, you know, from us. So somebody from yeah. there then administrating something without um, without an actual knowledge of really the ethos of or the cultural cultural fabric of uh, of Kalakshetra then problems can begin to crop in and they can begin to be systemic and uh, and develop and uh, become greater over the years. We use the word divine. We use all these words when we talk about the classical arts, when we talk about institutions. And I think that is what has sent this sort of major tremors and ripples across, across India and elsewhere. Because for the first time, people have Gotten up to realize that certain policies, like the Internal Complaints Committee, the Posh, Posh, the Posh Act, the Posco, have to be put in place, and you take for granted that they will be put in place without conflict of interest. You take for granted that a governing board of a very prestigious institution will keep close tabs on possible flare-ups or possible incons- inconsistencies or possible, you know, or troubles. And when you're in the art space and you find somebody is better than you, or maybe you don't look like the ideal, uh, whatever the ideal is of how a dancer needs to look. Maybe your body type is different. While aesthetics have changed, I've come back to say that body shaming is so common. I would say that it must have pushed the students to, uh, to take this extreme step. Otherwise, I think the students by and large are a very docile, you know, uh, obedient and have been for years. What I mm. feel, Oindrisha, and I want this to be really understood, is that if there has been transgression, if there has been uh, uh, harassment, if there has been predatory behavior, if somebody has actually been victimized and affected, we and I cannot say, why did you not tell somebody? Why did she not report it immediately? We don't know how deep the scars are, how long it takes for that shock of the sensation to actually come out as to say, did something actually happen? We don't know how long it takes for that person to actually articulate and speak it out. And
0: do you say when uh, these things are taken to courts, courts would warrant some kind of evidence to substantiate a sexual harassment act, and surprisingly, the onus is always more on the accused. Yes. Um, uh, yes. You know. So where is the, I'm the sorry, proof? I'm sorry. on on the survivor rather than the accused. So where's the proof and where's
1: the evidence? So. So it's like show me the proof. Show me. So the proof. show me the proof. So one uh, gender specialist said that one of the things that we can think about is when they're talking, when teachers are talking to their students is if something happens to you you either write it down somewhere in a diary or just tell somebody immediately because that can be the only kind of some kind of proof that something happened to me on that day it's because the media is paying attention mm-hmm. to these issues now that media is able to report it on the front page it's become uh, something that society needs to take cognizance of yeah. so right, so It's, uh, you know, March 21st is when the story broke and we're sitting now at the end of April and it's quite unusual for a story to have this kind of a timeline. Normally it comes and it goes and then there's another news cycle. Organizations like Kalakshetra that have so much goodwill and so much positivity uh, around them historically can also take a step back Acknowledge a changed ecosystem, in which yeah. people are paying attention, and uh, acknowledge that you cannot uh, take a high-handed approach or try to issue a gag order or threaten the students. You can't do it anymore. You can't do it in any atmosphere. And it's Correct. not about. And it's not about Oindrisha whether the accused walks free, gets you know gets accused. The fact is, we know in India that many of the Me to accuse sexual predators are walking amongst us free Absolutely. they are being they're being invited as chief guests and the argument is that how long can you deny genius how long can you how long can this go on
0: separating the art from the
1: artist artist but there's n- never an acknowledgement from that from the predators there's not even yeah. one one uh, yeah. word of remorse or you know We've never heard it, right? We've never heard one word of remorse. So, Kalakshetra is only, only a moment that has become a movement. And that's what I will say, that I hope other arts academies would step back and say, what is our policy? What is our policy when we're teaching minors? And sometimes it could mean that you have to let go of what's safe. You're, you know, people you depend on—if they turn out to be people who we may thought they were not—you'll have to make some choices. You'll have to let them go. Hopefully, uh, it's difficult in a country like India because, let me tell you, Oindrisha, many parents, when they are told this, even with, by, by their own children, they will say, "Don't make a big deal out of it." And I know that there are there is the one person who spoke and filed a complaint. She has an extremely supportive fiance. Another person who wished and was ready to, her husband said, no, I don't want you to get involved. So we've got to take cognizance that there is, there are other people involved in that decision. And what I'm really uh, disappointed with is when women get together and gaslight other women, you know, Uh, and uh, women finding excuses for, for bad behavior.
0: Which kind of brings me to the next question, Anita. dee is, is harassment gendered then? I mean, uh, when sexual um, allegations, harassment allegations uh, come up, we automatically associate it with that, of, that with women. I'm sure there are males as well, or like, you know, uh, people from the trans community or the LGBTQIA community. So how do we address harassment against or
1: across the spectrum, so to speak? Well, I think let's just focus on the art spaces because the art spaces have always been inclusive for people of all identities. We know that people who are transgendered, who are the LGBTQIA plus community, are creative, they're in drag, they, they dance, they sing, they cross-dress. And uh, yes, in in the classical dance world, there are lots of people who are closeted. We have to take it case by case. Right now, what are we what are we looking at? We're looking at, Equal Marriage Act. We're looking at so many issues. And then we're looking at what uh, judges are claiming to be what is normal and what is not normal. What We're looking at polls where 89% of people are saying, only this is accepted and that is not accepted. And yet in the arts, we're seeing all around us, I know of several Indian or Indian dancers who who are of the same sex and they have their partners and they have gotten married. But they're married outside India. I know somebody that's in New York. The yes, they're outside India. They have found the freedom of expression. So that's that's what I that's what I've, I'm coming to. Uh, there, there, there's been a, I have some discussions with people, and um, I say, do you think that if you came out, your the the students would stop coming to you? They said, I don't know. There's a series of series of problems. You know. And uh, of course, that's one. But when we talk of, uh, we are talking about your question is it's not just women, but men and also uh, transgenders and people of different identity everywhere across the spectrum. All these people in the art spaces are vulnerable when there's a power equation, unequal power equation, exploitation is rife. And in the create and in the creative world, not just the dance world dance, music, painting, arts, fashion, food, these creative areas attract people of various identities. They want the exposure, they want the opportunity, they want the performance space, they want, the, they want that moment in the limelight to express themselves. And who is that gatekeeper? We've got to look at all the different steps, you know, of who's the gatekeeper, who's going to give the green light for this, who's going to be the patron, are there, are there loopholes, are there catch, you know? We talk freely about the film industry and the casting couch syndrome. We talk freely about it, but it exists in many, many spheres. And the only way that we can do it is one, personal ethics, uh, because we can't expect every dance school to put an ICC or a Porsche or a POSCO in place, personal ethics. And I hope that when something like this happens, the red flag can be raised and that there can be a community that will come and support that person. You know, the dance community coming together and to actually talk about an issue. So I just want dancers to be more vocal, to be more articulate, to have a discussion about it and not say, if you're not with me, you're against me. Or be the large majority, which is throwing popcorn in their mouth, sitting on the fence and just watching, watching the fun.
0: It almost brings us to the last segment of our conversation, Anita Di. Your final parting thoughts for artists. I mean, you've already touched base on it, but how can artists be better allies and, you know, really register their solidarity up in front and not really talk in whispers and, uh, you know, and how, how can spaces, arts and culture spaces be democratized in in today's well,
1: age? Well, if we look at the people who are running the major newspapers, the media outlets, the, the cultural organizations, uh, and across the board, you can talk of, we can talk about the NCPA, or we can talk about the Kamani, or we can talk, we can talk wherever we are, the Bidla Sabagar, and all the cities, Chennai's got several. We're looking at a certain g- generation of patronage of people who came from either uh, business families, corporate families, who wanted to do something for the arts. So they put some money aside. The Tatas did it, the Shriram's did it. In Chennai, we've got all the corporates who have funded several of the cultural organizations. But now we have to have the plurality of voices speaking. And, um, uh, And that's what we need. We need to be able to step back and give other people the limelight. I'm so privileged right now that you've chosen me to speak to, you know? but i would love it if you would speak to some other people whom i could recommend who are from different identities and who can all you know have a space to talk and i want to say that to be a dancer is such a gift because even more than any of the other arts when you work with your body when your body is at play remember you don't you have the serotonin and the dopamine flowing freely you this is the this is the Uh, you know, this is the therapy that everybody says do is go dance or sing or go play sports is when the body is at play. It's like all's, all's right with the world. Many of the kinks get sorted out. I wish more people would dance and then we would have, I would say, perhaps temporarily at least a lot more smiles on a lot more faces. But coming back to a final question, I think those of us who have, the privilege and the opportunity to have our voices heard, must be able to amplify other voices as well. So that's what um, we are attempting to do now with my platform Nartaki. And we have invited and you know commissioned, we realize you know how top-heavy, how how structural the problems have been, and how we need to invite people to write either podcasts or little video clips, or if they can't write huge articles, have them have them become visible. We've got to have diverse opinions. We've got to have dissent. We must have disagreement. We must have hmm. ways in which... I mean, look, right now, we are looking at history being rewritten. Okay? But yes. when we sit and we talk to our children about the history of the of classical dance, or the history of Odissi, the history of Kathak, the history of Bharatanatyam, the history of Hindustani music, the history of Karnatic music, I don't think the students know the history of the form they're studying. You know, they don't know the history of the form about the collaborations between many communities about how there was so, so much synchronicity and, and a syncretic you know partnering and this so is there's w- an
0: information gap like there's a stark information stark
1: gap. in there's just enough to give learn this go there's a inf- huge information gap and i think cultural studies should be one of those one of those must learn things you know we did away with history we did away with philosophy let's bring in cultural studies at least as an optional course or a mandatory course in the first year of college at least
0: right right well it was a delight and a pleasure to talk to you you know across subjects and i wish we can do this more but uh, thank you thank you so much for
1: your time thank you so much and happy world dance day everybody get happy world dance day get up and dance
0: Get up and dance. Yes, yes, that's that's Anita Ratnam for the Quint. And that was this episode of News and Views with Dr. Anita Ratnam. Follow us on Instagram at the Quint and tell us what you want us to talk about next week. And check out our website, thequint.com, for more groundbreaking reports and videos. This was Oindrisha. And I'll see you in the next one. News and Views is a quint original podcast, executive produced by Shelly Valia and Ritu Kapoor. This episode was hosted by Oindra Shamitra, produced by Pratik Lidu, and edited by Anjali Palod, with theme music by BMG. And a special thanks to our guest, Dr. Anita Ratnam.
1: You were listening to the Quins podcast.